We do want to thank everybody who's been a part of uh, renovations and repairs and Lord willing improvements uh, that have been happening here in the auditorium. And aren't you excited for next week when you come and we've got a brand new orange shag carpet laid. Ah, that'll give you a reason to come back next Sunday. See if it's for real. But we certainly do appreciate everybody who's been a part of that. I did just want to clarify uh, for tonight, we'll have a devotional at 5.30 or at 5 o'clock. Uh, we go to about 5.45. And then shortly thereafter, we'll have a, just an activity for fellowship. Uh, we do want to make sure that we continue to have opportunities to just get to know each other. Uh, to continue to grow in closer relationships with each other. Have you ever been in a relationship and trusted a friend and shortly thereafter found out you probably should not have trusted them? Shared a secret, disclosed something, and before you know it, everybody everywhere knows the secret. And maybe your first reaction is to say, well, as a result, I'm never going to trust anyone ever again, which you come to find that's pretty tough to do because we need to go through life trusting people, building relationships, and being a part of those sorts of friendships. And yet there is part of us that wonders, is there anyone out there that I could fully and completely trust, and he will always come through for me? And maybe by the end of this sermon, you'll be able to answer that question with confidence. This morning, we're going to be studying Isaiah chapter 36 through 30. Nine. This is the final section of what some people refer to as book one in Isaiah. Isaiah is broken up into kind of three distinct chapters. This 39 first chapters we've been looking at all happened before the exile. By the time we get to chapter 40, we're going to be in their time of exile. And so we see these movements. And I think that what Isaiah is, is going to do in these final chapters is, is to kind of complete some of the themes that have been brought up earlier in this book. See, there's been the story of two kings have been primarily the focus. We've had King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, and then there's gonna be the story of a third king that's gonna leave us wondering what exactly is the fate and the future of that king that we met in chapter seven, but we'll get, we're getting ahead of ourselves if we think too much about that king right now. But let's begin in Isaiah chapter 36 and verse one. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. We're living in 2022, and this probably has no emotional impact for us. And yet at the time when this conquest of the Assyrians was happening, the king of Assyria, his name would be something similar to Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. Genghis Khan, Napoleon, he was known as a conqueror, and every single nation that seemed to get in his way would find themselves run over and defeated. Sennacherib's strategy was pretty simple. When he entered a city, in his own words, he said he would lock them up like a caged bird. After a period of time, once hunger and thirst took its effect, he would then move in his troops with these battering rams to breach the city gates. They had created anti-siege engines that they would go up and they would allow the fighters to get to the level of the heights of the city. And once there was a point of entry, they would enter like a flock, attacking, storming, and ransacking. And so at this point in Isaiah chapter 36, the Assyrian conquest has gone through the Syrians, the Ethiopians, the Philistines, the Egyptians, 
They've all fallen at the hand of the Assyrians. And now the text tells us that they are in Judah, and they are already mounting a successful campaign. In fact, we find them in his own writing of this time. Sennacherib says that he took in Judah 46 strong walled cities, as well as innumerable small cities. And now those troops are just 30 miles from Jerusalem in the city of Lachish. Lachish is being overtaken and overrun. Archaeologists later will find a mass grave with 1,500 people that is attributed to the time of Sennacherib coming in, bringing his destruction to that nation. And so the army, 30 miles away from Jerusalem. And at that point, the king of Assyria sent the Rabashekah from, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. The Rebbesheka comes a position, a, a cupbearer, an, an official of the king of Assyria comes, and he brings a great army, and he brings a message. And when he delivers this message, Isaiah tells us, he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And if we've been paying attention in Isaiah, we should hear echoes. The fuller's field, the conduit, the highway. And it reminds us back at the time in Isaiah 7-3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashbub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Geographically, we have come full circle. Thematically, we have come full circle. Where once again, a message is being delivered to the king... And the king must decide, will he follow God's ways or will he try to create his own pathway forward? And so there are going to be many connections with what we read in Isaiah 36 to what we read in Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, you will remember it was the king of Aram and the king of Israel who decided together that they were going to go down and attack king, the king of Assyria, of Judah, Ahaz. And Ahaz was told, do not fear. He was told, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, was to trust in God. But we know he didn't. And when he didn't, these consequences came and fell on the people of God as they were given a sign. And now we have Ahaz's son Hezekiah sitting on the throne. We have now a, a more imminent threat that is outside there. It's not an awareness of people who have made an alliance who are planning to come. They're right outside the city gates, standing there with a great army, and we're wondering, is the son going to make the same mistake that the father made? Is history going to repeat itself? Will the people of Judah trust in themselves, or will they trust in God? And so the man who is standing at the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, he says this to the people. The Rebbesheka said to them, Say to Hezekiah, No, he doesn't even call him King Hezekiah. To him, he's calling the president by the first name, as if this position means nothing to him. Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. So he comes with a great army, speaking on behalf of the great king. In his own journals, here's how Sennacherib introduces himself. He says he is the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, 
king of the four quarters of the earth, the wise shepherd, favorite of the great gods. That's who's talking to Hezekiah. That's who the Rebbeshekah is representing, bringing the words of this great king. And he asks the question, on what do you base this confidence of yours? Hezekiah has gone back and forth in his story. Sometimes he will refuse to make an alliance with Assyria. Other times he pays tribute to them. And this clearly is a time where he is saying, we will stand up to the Assyrians. And so the Repesheka says to him, Do you think that mere words are a strategy and power for war? On whom do you now rely that you rebel against me? See, you are relying on Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. So say, what gives you the confidence to stand here and think that in any way you're going to be able to withstand us? And he says, if your confidence is based on Egypt, you've got another thing coming. To which, do you know what Isaiah would say to that? Amen. Preach it. Because Isaiah has been saying the same thing to the people of Judah. When they have gone to make alliances with Egypt, they're saying, they can't stop the Assyrians. They can't help you. You would be foolish to make an alliance with them. This is what Hezekiah, or what Isaiah had told them. In verse 31, chapter 31, verse 1, Alas for those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in chariots, because they are many, and in the horsemen, because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So the Rebbesheka and Isaiah agree on one thing. For Judah to trust in Egypt is a bad strategy. On what do they base their confidence? The Rebbesheka then says, But if you say to me, We rely on the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? See, what the Rebbesheka does not realize is when Hezekiah tore down the high places, he thought he was kicking out Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Judah. And yet what he was doing was he was kicking out all that was false, all that was fake about God. The Rebbesheka does not realize that God does not dwell in places built with human hands. And he says, surely the God that you kicked out is not going to come and save you. And so he begins to taunt the people. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. In other words, hey, we're going we're gonna to make this battle a little fair. We'll even give you 2,000 horses, though we doubt you even have 2,000 people who could get on the horses that we would supply to you. That's how much power difference there is between the two of us. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. And here the Rabbishekah has the ultimate blasphemy. To say that God told me to do something that God didn't tell me to do. To claim to be speaking the very words of God. They're saying, hey, not only is God going to give you into our hands, but in fact God is the one who has sent us, but God has not sent them. He is blaspheming, claiming to speak for God. 
But apparently the speech is having some effect on these representatives who are listening to it. And so what they tell the Rebbe is they say, shh, like don't speak in the language that everyone can hear. Speak to us instead in Assyrian. And so then that way nobody will be able to hear what it is you're saying. And the Rebbe says, this message is not just for Hezekiah the king. Because by now there's a crowd of people who've gathered on the walls and he's saying, I want them to be fully aware of the stake they have in this. If they choose to trust in their king. He offers them demoralizing words. And basically he says, don't listen to Hezekiah. God cannot make your lives good. God cannot make your lives profitable. Only good things can come under the reign and the rule of Sennacherib. Here's how he offers the people a plan. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from your own vine and your own fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and a land of wine, a land that is filled, uh, a land of bread and vineyards. So what do you do? Offering you a better plan than what the king can give you. And he says, hey, just in case you still have a little bit of confidence in God, realize that there has not been a single God who has been able to withstand this Assyrian onslaught. What about Hamath? Gone. Arapat? Gone. Shepharim? Gone. All these foreign gods are gone. And why would the fate of the God of Judah be any different? Now let's be honest for a minute. You hear the speech makes a pretty strong case for why it is foolish to stand up against the Assyrians, what would you do? On what would you base your confidence? Would you say, we can stand with God and we can stand against them? Or would you say, sounds like a pretty good deal. Where's the signature going to go? I'm a sign on the dotted line. You can do with me whatever you choose to do. And what the people do is they remain silent because they were instructed by King Hezekiah to do so. In other words, they trust King Hezekiah to make a decision that will be right and wise for them. And what does Hezekiah do? When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Tearing your clothes, covering yourself in sackcloth is an act of humility. He humbles himself before God. And if we've been listening and paying attention through Isaiah, one of the worst things that a person can do is be arrogant, proudful, boastful in the presence of God. Notice what Isaiah said back in chapter 2, verse 11. The haughty eyes of people shall be brought low. The proud proud of everyone shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. In fact, so far in Isaiah, we've only seen one man humble himself in the presence of God. That was Isaiah himself when he said, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. And God exalted him. God healed him. And now we have the second person who goes now humble before God, and we can anticipate God's promise and deliverance for him. We expect good to come. We learn in chapter 37, verse 2, that Hezekiah also sends for Isaiah. His dad said, hey, we don't want to hear what Isaiah has to say. And now Hezekiah says, well, we need Isaiah because we need to hear what God wants us to do 
in response to this. And Isaiah comes with the word of the Lord, and he says, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid, because of the words that you have heard, with which your servant of the king of Assyria have reviled me. I myself will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. We could summarize Isaiah's words to Hezekiah. It's two things. Number one, don't be afraid. Number two, God's going to take care of it. Which, by the way, if we were remembering back in chapter 7, the words that were given to his father Ahaz was very similar. What? Don't be afraid. And what? God's going to take care of it. And now we wonder what the son will do with the words that his father disobeyed. In Isaiah chapter 37, verses 8 and 9, we need to read between the lines because we, we come to realize that clearly Hezekiah refused the offer, refused to submit to the Assyrian army. And the message goes back to the king, and the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he then sends a message, and the message is a repetition of a lot of the things that he just said, a lot of the points. And what does Hezekiah do in response to that letter? In verse 14, we find that he goes up to the house of the Lord. And in verse 15, we find that Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. You see how no matter how much pressure is put on him, to whom does he rely? Where does he turn? Who does he trust in? He continues to look to God's direction. In fact, let's listen to the prayer that Hezekiah prayed on this occasion. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are God you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear us. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste to all the nations and their lands, and have hurled their gods into the fire though they were no gods at all, but the work of human hands, of wood and stone, and so they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand so that the kingdoms of the earth may, be no, may know that you alone are the Lord. That's what I would call a prayer of faith in a desperate situation where you might be tempted to try to finagle your own way out of the situation, Hezekiah says, I will trust in God's salvation and deliverance. And Isaiah gives the message to Hezekiah that because that you have prayed, and he goes on to say that there are all sorts of bad things that are going to happen to Sennacherib. We'll summarize it by what is said in verse 27, 29. I will put my hook in your nose, speaking of Sennacherib, and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way in which you came. Just like he did with Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, God gives a sign. This time the sign will be one of blessing that will come upon the people. Verse 30, and this shall be the sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself, and in the second year, what springs from that, and in the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. And God fulfilled what he promised. Verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord set out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When morning dawned, they were all 
dead bodies. And wouldn't this be a wonderful place to end the story of Hezekiah's kingship? I mean, we love happy endings. We love victorious moments. We love heroes who, who offer salvation and deliverance to the people, but we realize we're just in the end of verse chapter 37. There's chapter 38 and there's chapter 39. And in chapter 39, what you need to know is Hezekiah is not painted very well in a positive light. But the most interesting thing about it is chapters 38 and 39 chronologically must appear before what we just read. In other words, Isaiah had the opportunity to end on a high note and he goes back to something that happened probably 15 years before and reminds the people of why ultimately they will be sold into slavery. It was an occasion after he was sick. The king of Babylon came, sent people to him, and, and Hezekiah just shows off all of his wealth and his resources, and, and, and whether it be to, to set an alliance or whether it be for a sake of boasting, God is not pleased with what Hezekiah does. He sends Isaiah there to rebuke him, and Isaiah offers these words in Isaiah 39, 6. Days are coming when your house and that which your ancestors have stored up until this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. But those days will not come until the end of the days of Hezekiah. Isaiah chapter 1 through chapter 39 is the story of three kings and how their choices impact people. When the king trusts God, there is a rich blessing for the people. But when the king does not trust God, the people suffer. The first king is King Ahaz. He is the unfaithful king who could have trusted in God's deliverance, rebelled against God, and because of that, the people faced the flood of the Assyrian army. Hezekiah is the faithful but not perfect king. There are blessings that come because of his faithfulness. In fact, here's how 2 Kings describes Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was no one like him in all the kings of Judah after him or among those who were before him. So he wasn't a perfect king, but he was a faithful king, and you would have been blessed if you could have lived in the days and the time of Hezekiah. But we know that the only blessing he could secure lasted his lifetime. And because of his own sins and the sins of the people after his life, there would be punishment that came to the people. And if you had to choose a king, you wonder, is there a king out there who is faithful and perfect? And what would it be like to live under the rule and the reign of a faithful and perfect king? And to see that king is one that has been introduced and yet not fully explored in the book of Isaiah. He was introduced in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son. And you shall name him Emmanuel. He is the king we will find out in just a few verses who will know how to refuse the evil and to choose the good. And as the people get ready to go into captivity, what they are going to be doing in captivity is wondering, when will that perfect king come? When will we be brought out of the pain and the suffering of exile, being brought back into being a people who are ruled by a faithful king? What would it be like to be led by a humble king who would listen to God? What would it be like to be led by a king to whom God would listen to that king? 
What would it be like to live under a king who would secure us a blessing, not just for today, but forever? And how would you feel to know that that king has already come? Here's how Matthew speaks of that king. Saying of Mary, says, She will bear a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the long-anticipated, faithful, and perfect king. That those who submit to him can trust fully in his kingship. In fact, here's what Hebrews says of him. Christ, however, was faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we hold firm to the confidence and the pride that belong to hope. I began this morning asking if you wish that there was a friend that you knew you could completely trust in. And Jesus is introduced to us not just as that friend, but as the king who is completely trustworthy. We trust in a king who will bring good news and not harm to his people. We trust in a king who will bring blessing not just today, but in all the days to come. And as we reflect on this king, he should bring us to a point of praise. Praise be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he sent us a faithful and perfect king. That we who are part of his house will be blessed forever. And so the question for us this morning is this. Is Jesus your king? Have you said, I trust him fully and completely with my own life, with my own decisions, with my own resources? And if you have, you can have confidence and hope in his faithfulness and in his perfection. And yet, if you have not yet claimed for him to be your king, this is an opportunity to say, I trust him. And I will always trust him to provide for his people. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. May the Lord look to us and be gracious to us. And as we go from here, we go knowing that we have the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to respond in any way, I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. If you want to respond, I invite you to do that while we stand and sing.